So it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to introduce this year's Comte Memorial Lecture, Jeff McMahon, who crossed the Atlantic from America in 1976 to study PPE on a Rhodes Scholarship at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. And then he, he began a doctorate in philosophy at Oxford. And then he switched over to Cambridge, availing himself of the opportunity to study with two of the great moral philosophers of the late 20th century, Derek Parfit and Bernard Williams, quite a contrast. I don't know of anyone else who was supervised by the two of them. Now, after teaching for about three decades in the United States, most recently at Rutgers, Jeff returned to Corpus Christi College in the autumn to take up the White's chair in moral philosophy, following in the footsteps and filling the shoes of his mentor Bernard Williams and also R.M. Hare, J.L. Austin, H.A. Pritchard, W.D. Ross, T.H. Green, and a number of others stretching back all the way to the foundation of the chair in 1621. Now, it's difficult to characterize Jeff's own contributions to moral philosophy in a brief introduction, but I'll give it a shot, pun intended. Let me begin by saying that if you're thinking about shooting someone and you're wondering whether this is okay, then Jeff is definitely your go-to person. Now, this applies whether you're a military general, a child soldier, an insentient drone hovering overhead, or a civilian with a ray gun who happens to be stuck at the bottom of a well. In Jeff's writings, you'll find advice not only regarding the permissibility of killing another human being in every conceivable circumstance, but also regarding the permissibility of torturing, maiming, and punishing people, occupying their country, or threatening them with nuclear annihilation. And his advice extends beyond doing bad things to people. He will also tell you whether it's permissible to do even worse things to animals. For example, to slaughter them and eat them for pleasure. Well, I'm not really doing justice to the wide range of Jeff's interests. He's also written extensively on the topic of death and dying and why these are bad even when killing is in no way involved. Well, he is the author of much brilliant and creative work, not only about death and dying, but also about birth and procreation, including, you may not be surprised to learn, the circumstances in which it's permissible to kill that which one has just conceived or to which one has recently given birth. So the topic of Jeff's lecture for today is not about birth, and by disjunctive syllogism, it's therefore about death and killing, the title is Liability, Proportionality, and the Number of Aggressors, and it's my pleasure to turn the podium over to Jeff, and we should brace ourselves for the carnage that's about to ensue. <laughs> Thanks. What a nice introduction. <clears throat> that is right. I, I, I think that if you're going to kill people, you should always do it ethically. Um, and so I'm here to tell you how. What I'm going to talk about tonight is going to be perhaps a little more esoteric than um, what I sometimes write about. Um, but it is going to uh, satisfy the expectations that Mike has given rise to because I've got cases in here that involve killing thousands of people. So um, 
it is going to be exciting in that respect. Although it may be hard for you to imagine ways in which what I'm going to talk about tonight is really relevant to matters of practice, I assure you that I came to worry about the issues that I'm going to discuss this evening through thinking about the morality of killing in war. And I hope you'll see some connections here, because I'm, I'm asking, really, in the, in the talk about the permissibility uh, of killing large numbers of people to save the lives of much smaller numbers of people. I'm going to begin with four examples. They're all pretty easy to understand. The first case is this. You imagine that there's an innocent victim who's about to be killed by a fully culpable threatener. And assume that both of these people would suffer a roughly equal or equivalent harm in dying or being killed. I think most of us would agree in this case that it would be permissible for the potential victim or a nearby third party to kill the fully culpable killer in defense of the innocent victim. And I think that's because in these conditions, it's unavoidable that one of them will be killed. That is, unless the innocent victim kills the culpable killer, the culpable killer will kill the innocent victim. Given that the culpable killer is responsible for the fact that one of them must be killed, it seems to me to be a matter of justice that it should be the one who's responsible for this fact who should suffer the harm that has been made unavoidable by his own wrongful conduct. And I, I want to articulate this by saying that the culpable killer is morally liable to be killed in these circumstances, and part of what I mean by that is to say that in killing him, the innocent victim would not wrong him, wouldn't violate his rights. Second case... I want you to think about is a case in which there are a thousand such culpable killers coming after one innocent victim. They are coming serially one after another in rapid succession. Uh, I want you to make some assumptions about this case. One assumption is that if the innocent victim kills the first of these thousand culpable killers, she'll immediately be killed by the second one unless she kills him and by the third unless she kills the second, and so on until she's killed all of them. You can imagine that she has this capacity to do so. I also want to make the assumption that the interval uh, between her killing the first one and the second one and between killing the second one and killing the third one and so on is very short and would not consist of life that would be worth living, just be a moment of terror. So uh, you'll see that's important. Uh, for what I'm going to be saying later. You can also make some other assumptions. You assume that these culpable killers have no relatives or people who care about them, so we put aside the question of side effects when we're considering whether it's permissible for the uh, victim to kill all thousand of these culpable people and so on. And again, my thought here is that it is or could be permissible for the victim or a third party to kill each of these culpable killers uh, in sequence, and that the justification in each case would be the same as it is in the first instance, where there's only one of them, namely 
that each one of them, by threatening the life of the innocent victim, makes himself morally liable to be killed in defense of the innocent victim. Third example I want you to think about is like the first case in, in that it involves only a single threatener, but in this case, the single threatener who will, unless prevented, kill an innocent victim is not culpable for this, but is only minimally responsible for the threat he poses to the innocent victim. You might imagine, for example, that this is somebody who has acted in a way that we normally think is permissible, that imposes a very small risk on other people, and unluckily and improbably, the risk has been realized in this case, and now he threatens to kill this innocent person. But this person, though he's made the decision to expose other people to this risk isn't culpable or blameworthy for having done so. So I'm going to call this person a minimally responsible threatener or a minimally responsible killer. My thought here is that there is indeed, again, a liability justification for killing the one minimally responsible threatener. After all, this person has chosen to engage in a form of action that he can foresee has a small probability of resulting in the death of some innocent person. And in the case in which the risk is realized and there's now a choice between his, kill, his, his killing the innocent victim and the innocent victim's killing him or a third party's killing him, it seems to me that, again, as a matter of justice, the person who has chosen to engage in this foreseeably risk-imposing activity should be the one to bear the harm. Now, I'm assuming that there are no other alternatives here. There's no uh, way in which they can divide the harm between them. It's all or nothing. One of them has got to, got to die. And again, it seems to me, as in the case of the culpable killer, there is what I would call a liability justification for killing the minimally responsible threatener. Fourth and final case, you can perhaps imagine what this will be. Um, now you've got a thousand of these minimally responsible killers coming at um, a single victim in rapid succession. And the question is whether it's now permissible for the innocent victim to kill all thousand minimally culpable killers. If there's a liability justification for killing the single culpable killer, a liability justification for killing the single minimally responsible killer, liability justifications in sequence for killing all thousand culpable killers, it may seem that we can just that these liability justifications can in this instance also be indefinitely reapplied, yielding the conclusion that it would be permissible for the innocent victim to kill all thousand minimally responsible. Killers. But I think if that's right, that is, if the liability justification can continue to be reapplied indefinitely in each comparison between the potential victim and the potential killer, it looks like it follows that there is no limit to the number of minimally responsible killers that it would be permissible for someone to kill. And you might think this is just an inevitable consequence of the fact that liability justifications work this way via what philosophers call pairwise comparisons. That is, in each case, you, you compare 
the killing of the victim and the killing of the killer. And it looks like in, in those instances, as I've said, there's a liability justification for killing the, the killer. And then this just can be reapplied indefinitely. Uh, some people have embraced this conclusion very explicitly in the literature, more than, more than one person, um, all, all fairly eminent. Here's one quotation from uh, a philosopher, Francis Cam, at Harvard. She writes that, and I'm quoting now, a response to multiple wrongdoers can satisfy narrow proportionality so long as the response of each is proportional to his wrongdoing. One compares the wrong to be avoided with what would have to be done to each wrongdoer one at a time. And if there's no violation of proportionality in any individual comparison, then there's no violation to court. She uses the term narrow proportionality there. I'm going to repeat that term a few times during the talk. What this means is proportionality in harms inflicted on people who are potentially morally liable to be harmed in some way by virtue of the way that they have acted. So it's a, it's a constraint on a liability justification, which is what I'm talking about here. It contrasts with something called wide proportionality, which is proportionality in harms inflicted on people who are not liable to any harm at all. Um, you may recognize, if you know some of the literature, that if you uh, read discussions of individual self-defense in the legal literature, references to proportionality there are almost invariably references to what I'm calling narrow proportionality. That is, there are discussions of whether the harm to the threatener is disproportionate in relation to the harm threatened to the potential victim. Whereas if you read literature on just war theory, uh, you'll find references to proportionality, and there the references are invariably to what I'm calling wide proportionality, namely uh, proportionality in harms to innocent bystanders, people who are not liable to any harm at all. Uh, in the case of most just war theorists, uh, innocent bystanders are understood to be civilians. So when you encounter references to proportionality in, in uh, just war literature, it'll be to uh, questions about the proportionality of harming civilians as a side effect of military action. Like I say, I'm going to refer a little bit uh, on occasion to narrow proportionality here. Wide proportionality is going to be irrelevant for the purposes of this talk. At the end of the talk, I am going to introduce a third form of proportionality that I think is entirely distinct from these other two. Uh, and we'll see whether you think that this is a, a, a coherent or plausible third notion of proportionality. Okay, so we've got the four cases, and I think many people believe that it would be permissible and therefore proportionate for an innocent person to kill all thousand culpable killers. These are all murderers who are going to murder him if, if, or her if she doesn't kill them. But I myself find it uh, hard to believe that it could be permissible for a single innocent person to kill a thousand minimally responsible threateners. And that's because the moral difference between the potential victim and the minimally responsible threatener is so tiny. The only difference is that the minimally responsible threatener 
bears some minimal responsibility for the fact that one or the other of them must die, and the innocent victim bears no responsibility at all. I think that's sufficient to justify, or might be sufficient to justify, killing one minimally responsible threatener, but I find it really hard to believe that it could be... Uh, that it could underlie a justification for killing all thousand. And there are, in fact, many philosophers who think that even a single minimally responsible killer isn't morally liable to be killed. And in some cases, I'm inclined to agree with that. If, for example, I had set up the case making it that the minimally responsible killer was um, 18 years old and the victim was 100 years old, then I might think that it would in fact be disproportionate for the 100-year-old victim to kill the 18-year-old minimally responsible killer. Uh, And that would be because the harm that would be being inflicted on the minimally responsible killer would be so much greater than the harm that the uh, victim who, let's suppose, couldn't live much longer in any case, would suffer in being killed. And if you agree with me that it might be disproportionate or impermissible in such a case for an innocent victim to kill one minimally responsible threatener, um, then I think you have some reason to share my suspicion about the claim that it could be permissible to kill a large number of minimally responsible killers. Because the amount of harm that they will all suffer would greatly exceed that which any one minimally responsible threatener, even an 18-year-old minimally responsible threatener, would suffer in being killed. So that's the problem I want to address. Or actually, there are two problems here. One is this. If you think, as I do, that there's got to be some limit to the number of minimally responsible killers that can be permissible to kill in self-defense, but you think that there may not be any limit to the number of culpable killers that can be permissible to kill, or if you think that even if there's a limit to the number of culpable killers it can be permissible to kill, that limit is much higher than the limit to the number of minimally responsible killers that it's permissible to kill in self-defense, then you've got to have an explanation of why that's so. That's one problem. But the more important problem is this. If the justifications in the individual cases for killing the the, the threatener are indeed liability justifications, that is, if they are based on the claim that when we compare the killer and the victim, we see that the killer is responsible for the fact that one of them must die and therefore would not be wronged by being killed, in defense of the innocent victim. If we think that that's the right form of justification in the individual case, how could it be that that form of justification can't be applied indefinitely? How is it that there could be a limit to the number of uh, potential killers that could be permissible to kill if the form of justification in each case is a liability justification. That's the question. Now I want to suggest one, I think it's fairly obvious response to the problem, 
And that's to say that the reason there's a limit to the number of minimally responsible threateners it can be permissible to kill is that in no single pairwise comparison in this sequence of a thousand <coughs> is the minimally responsible threatener actually morally liable to be killed. That's compatible with the idea that if there were only one minimally responsible threatener, he would be morally liable to be killed. The difference is that if there are a whole lot of them and they're coming at the victim sequentially, killing the first one won't do any good. Nothing will be achieved. It will be completely ineffective as a means of defense because if the victim kills the very first one, another one will come along and, and, and kill her immediately thereafter unless she keeps on killing them. What that means is that if she kills the first one, all she's securing for herself is just a moment of life that wouldn't even be worth living. So there's no benefit to her in killing the first one. So killing the first one is ineffective as a means of defense, and I take it that it's also, therefore, disproportionate, because there's no good to weigh against the harm that's being done. I also think that effectiveness and proportionality are constraints that are internal to the notion of liability. And what that means is that a person can't be liable to be harmed in a certain way if his being harmed in that way would be completely ineffective or would be disproportionate. So we can't be liable to wholly ineffective or disproportionate harms. So it seems to follow that actually none of the minimally responsible threateners is morally liable to be killed. So the victim mustn't kill even the very first one. Maybe that's plausible in the case of the uh, thousand minimally responsible killers. I'm inclined to think that it is. That is, if I can't kill them all, then I mustn't kill even the first one. Problem with this for many people, though, is that the same logic applies in the case of the thousand culpable killers. If the, you, you might think of it this way. Imagine that in the case of the thousand culpable killers, the victim has a gun, but, it, but she has only one bullet. So she can kill the very first culpable killer, but a moment after she kills the first culpable killer, she's going to be killed by the second one. Now, what I've claimed is she doesn't achieve anything significant for herself by killing the first one. She prolongs her life by only a moment, and the life she gets isn't really worth living because it's just a moment of terror that she secures for herself by killing the first one. Given what I've said, I think the immediate inference is that... Not only ought she not to kill the first culpable killer, but because killing the first culpable killer would be ineffective and therefore disproportionate, and if effectiveness and proportionality are, as I've said, internal to the notion of liability, then the first culpable killer isn't morally liable to be killed. So the liability justification is defeated right at the outset. Now, most people find that really implausible. 
Because what I'm saying here is that if the victim kills the first of the thousand culpable killers, she's going to be wronging this person. She's going to be violating his rights. And most people think that can't be true. She can't actually be wronging this man who will otherwise murder her if she kills him. But I think it is true that she does actually wrong the first culpable killer by killing him. Let me give you a a parallel case, a parallel case of somebody who is every bit as culpable as the first culpable killer. Imagine, now this is, this is the fifth, fifth example I'm giving you. Imagine that the, the very same victim is, is minding her own business and there's a man who reasonably believes that if he gives her a really sharp pinch on the arm, this will cause her to die in horrible agony. This is because, I mean, he reasonably believes this because he believes falsely that she's a hemophiliac and she also, he also believes falsely that if you give a hemophiliac a sharp pinch on the arm, uh, uh, the hemophiliac will die in agony. So here comes this man who's going to pinch this woman. Imagine he's highly culpable. He, he wants her to die in horrible agony for no good reason. Is it permissible for her to kill this man? If the only way that she can prevent herself from being pinched by this highly culpable pincher is to kill him, is it permissible for her to kill this man to prevent herself from being pinched? Well, I think clearly not. That's a paradigm case of disproportionate harm. To kill somebody who will otherwise pinch you, that's got to be disproportionate, even if the pincher is highly culpable which this man is, because he thinks he's, I mean, he's actually attempting a murder, but of course he's going to fail. But it seems to me hard to, to locate the difference between the first culpable killer and the highly culpable pincher. They're both highly culpable, and each one of them threatens the victim with only a really insignificant harm. In fact, the pincher threatens a greater harm than the first killer does. It's worse to get a nasty pinch than it is to be deprived of one moment of life that's not worth living. That's not even a harm. Okay. There's a problem. Here's one way of responding to it. That is, how do you distinguish between the culpable pincher and the first culpable killer? I think most of you probably want to do that. You want to think that um, while it's not permissible to kill the culpable pincher, it might be permissible and proportionate to kill the culpable killer because he'll otherwise kill the one. Even if you've got just one bullet, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's it's assuming that you've got only one bullet. Here's the way you can resolve this problem if you, if, if you have the intuitions I think most people have about these cases. You can say that proportionality is actually not a relation between the harm 
that a defender will cause and the harm that the defender's action will avert, rather you can say that proportionality is a relation between the harm that defensive action would cause to the threatener and the strength or stringency of the right that's being threatened or the magnitude of the wrong to be prevented. So we're not Proportionality isn't a comparison between a harm and a harm, but it's a comparison between a harm and a wrong. And if you draw, if, if you think of proportionality in that way, what you can say is that killing the culpable pincher would be disproportionate because it's not permissible, it's not proportionate to kill somebody to prevent a violation of one's right not to be pinched. That's a trivial right, the right not to be pinched. But in the case of the culpable killer, what proportionality requires is a comparison between the harm involved in killing somebody and the right not to be killed or murdered, or the wrong that would be involved in being wrongly killed. So you could say, so you could explain then why killing the culpable killer would not be disproportionate, but killing the culpable pincher would be disproportionate. And in fact, let me go back to the quotation from Cam that I gave you a good bit earlier, wherever that was. Where was this? Sorry, yeah. This is in fact the notion of proportionality that you find in that quotation that I cited from Frances Cam earlier. She says, one compares the wrong to be avoided with what would have to be done to each wrongdoer. So it's the harm to the wrongdoer weighed against the wrong that would be prevented through the infliction of defensive harm. So she seems to accept this understanding of proportionality. I think this is the wrong way to understand proportionality. That's because it seems to me that Actually, I said earlier I wasn't going to mention wide proportionality again, but I am. I'm going to do it now. Sorry. Uh, The same good effects should weigh in the proportionality calculation for both wide proportionality and narrow proportionality. Now, in discussing with you the case of the culpable killer and the case of the culpable pincher, we've been discussing narrow proportionality which is a constraint on harming people who are morally liable to be harmed to some degree. But as I mentioned earlier, there's also proportionality in harms to people who are not liable to any harm at all. So you can imagine that in, in the case of the culpable killer, suppose, it, suppose that the victim can kill the first culpable killer as a means of preventing him from murdering her. But as a side effect, she's going to cause some very serious harm to an innocent bystander. Is it permissible for her to do that? Well, if we think about proportionality in terms of the wrong to be averted, then it seems like the wrong that's being averted here is a very great wrong, and that should justify the infliction of a reasonably serious harm as a side effect, even on an innocent bystander. That would certainly be the case if this were just an ordinary instance of murder, 
This was the only way I could prevent myself from being murdered and deprived of a large number of good years of life was to act against the murderer in a way that would cause <coughs> Mike to suffer some significant harm as a side effect that could be proportionate. But I claim, and I'm sure Mike agrees, <coughs> but I claim that if all I'm really going to achieve by killing this murderer and injuring Mike as a side effect is to give myself one moment of life not worth living before I'm going to be killed by another culpable killer, then, I, then my acting is going to be disproportionate. And the harm I'm going to be causing to Mike is disproportionate. So I think we have to evaluate proportionality by weighing harms against harms, not by weighing harms against rights or harms against wrongs. And I'll just say parenthetically that it seems to me that we can account for the intuition that the first culpable killer would not be wronged by being killed by appealing to a range of other considerations. For example, many people believe that the culpable killer in attempting a murder must deserve to suffer some harm. Or we might think that in killing the culpable killer, some measure of deterrence would be achieved. So that would be a good that would be achieved in this way. Um, we might think that in harming the culpable killer, the victim would be somehow asserting or vindicating her moral dignity in the face of this egregious act of moral disrespect, and so on and so forth. I'm not denying any of these claims. And so when we take account of claims of that sort, we can, I think, explain the intuition that in killing the first culpable killer, even if it's not going to have any significant defensive effect, the victim would nevertheless not be violating the rights of the culpable killer. So far I've been assuming that in each pairwise comparison between killing a minimally responsible killer and allowing the victim to be killed, the killing would be ineffective. And that's because of the presence of the remaining killers. But killing one minimally responsible killer would be effective on the assumption that all the other killers were going to be killed as well. In that case, killing each would be effective. They would be effective in combination. So conditionally on the assumption that all the others are going to be killed, killing one would be effective and would be proportionate. I mean, you can see this if you think about the, the case in which the victim has already killed the first 999 minimally responsible killers. That's already passed and done. Now she, all she's got to do is kill one more. Well, if she kills the one more, that's going to be effective, clearly, because then she will be preventing herself from being deprived of many years of good life. And so what I want to say is that the same is true in each pairwise comparison, conditionally on the assumption that all the others are going to be killed. You might think this reflection provides a possible uh, 
solution to the problem. But I think what, there's, a, there's a problem of circularity here. Let me try to explain what it is. What I've said is that killing any minimally responsible killer is ineffective and therefore disproportionate if the victim won't, uh, will immediately be killed by yet another killer uh, after she kills the first one. But then I've said, well, killing could actually be effective if all the others will be killed as well. But because we want to know what it's permissible to do, we should assume full compliance with morality here. So I want to assume that all will be killed only if it's permissible to kill them all. Yet whether it's permissible to kill all thousand depends on whether all of them are morally liable to be killed. And that's because a liability justification is the only possible justification for killing a thousand people in defense of one person. There's no other possible justification for that. So we get the following conclusion. It's permissible to kill all the minimally responsible killers only if there's a liability justification for killing each. But there's a liability justification for killing each only if it's permissible to kill all of them, which is a vicious circle. I'm going to suggest at the end of the talk a way of breaking out of the circle, but first I want to just look quickly at two other ways in which one might try to solve this problem. Some philosophers have thought that the explanation of why there's a limit to the number of minimally responsible killers that can be permissible to kill is that even though each killer is morally liable to be killed, <coughs> the individual liability justifications are overridden by considerations of beneficence. As you've got a conflict between the liability justification on the one hand and considerations of beneficence on the other. Let me quote a couple of passages from the Oxford philosopher David Roden in which he proposes this idea. He says that within a liability justification, harms inflicted on multiple aggressors are not aggregated but considered separately. This is why inflicting defensive harm on any number of persons who are individually liable to that harm can be proportionate on a liability account. So you see there, Roden is saying exactly the same thing that I quoted Francis Cam saying earlier, namely that liability justifications work via pairwise comparisons in this way. But then he immediately goes on to say the following. Lesser evil justification, by contrast, aggregates the defensive harms inflicted on all affected persons. It discounts the evil attributed to harm inflicted on the liable, but unless the harm is discounted to zero, it's still possible that defensive harm inflicted on multiple liable persons will not be the lesser evil. And what I take him to mean there is that the infliction of all this harm on each of these people who are liable to that harm results in so much aggregate harm that the aggregate harm somehow become, is, is the greater evil and therefore provides what Roden is calling a lesser evil justification for allowing 
the innocent victim to be killed or for insisting that the innocent victim suffer death rather than uh, acting on each of the liability justifications for killing the uh, threateners. Now, the problem with, as I see it, there are several problems with this idea. One is that, of course, it applies equally to the case of the culpable killers and to the case of the minimally responsible killers. Roden thinks it does himself. Uh, He thinks, however, that in a way this is plausible because we can discount the interests of the culpable killers in a way that we can't similarly discount the interests of the minimally responsible killers. And what that means is that the limit to the number of minimally responsible killers it can be permissible to kill is going to be much lower than the limit to the number of culpable killers it can be permissible to kill. I think that's not right. I don't think that, you can, that Rodin is entitled to this idea that you can discount the interests of the culpable killers by more than you can discount the interests of the minimally responsible killers. And that's because... We've already asked how much harm it's permissible to inflict on the culpable killers because of their culpable responsibility for the fact that somebody's got to be killed. In other words, we've already taken this into account in thinking about the liability justifications. So when we get to thinking about considerations of beneficence, just sheer magnitudes of harm, we shouldn't bring that consideration back in yet again. That's already been taken into account in the liability justification. So I think if you're going to pursue this line of argument, you have to think of the, the harms to the, minimally, to the culpable killers as counting in exactly the same way that the harms to the minimally responsible killers count. And that means that the limit to the number of uh, culpable killers and the limit to the number of minimally responsible killers that's permissible to kill are going to be the same, and that seems to me implausible. But the main problem with this idea, I think, is just that, this is going to sound rather strong, but it seems to me incoherent. And that's because the idea here is that you've got this, these harms uh, to either of the batches of, uh, of a thousand killers, You're saying that these are harms for which there are liability justifications, but somehow or other, these harms, when aggregated, then defeat their own justifications. Because we've already justified these harms, but now when we add them up, we say, well, that's too much harm, so it must defeat the justifications that we have for inflicting them. And I don't see how that could be coherent. Let me suggest one other possibility before uh, going to the, the solution that I want to propose. This is a view that for a long time I thought was the right solution to the problem. But now I think it's not. The idea is this. We could start with the idea that while each culpable killer is morally liable to be killed, No minimally responsible killer is actually liable to be killed, whether singly or in aggregate. When I claimed that a single minimally responsible killer is morally liable to be killed, 
I was presupposing what one might call a comparative notion of liability. I was comparing the two possible options. Either all the harm goes to the minimally responsible killer or all the harm goes to the completely innocent victim. And I was saying that given those two options, it should all go to the minimally responsible killer. But a number of theorists of self-defense have said, no, that's not the right way to think about liability to defensive harming. Rather, there's a non-comparative limit to the degree of harm to which a person can be morally liable. And this limit is given by two factors. First of all, the amount of harm that the threatener will cause if not prevented. And secondly, the degree to which the threatener would be morally responsible for that harm. And some people have then gone on to claim that somebody who's minimally responsible for a threat of a certain degree of harm, because of his minimal responsibility, can't be morally liable to a harm that's as great as the harm that he would otherwise cause. Um, Some of you are probably familiar with the journal called Ethics, important journal. I believe that it's in the current issue. There's a paper by a former student of mine named Saba Bazargan in which he makes uh, just that claim. And a number of other people have made this claim as well. And in fact, the whole paper by Bazargan is a defense of a form of justification of the sort that I'm suggesting here, though his is in many ways quite different from the one that I'm suggesting. Mine is a bit simpler, actually. Um, So some people think that even a single minimally responsible killer can't be morally liable to be killed. That's because of this non-comparative limit to the amount of harm to which a person can be liable. And he's minimally responsible for the threat that he poses. But I don't know anyone who thinks that it's all things considered morally impermissible for an innocent victim to kill a minimally responsible threatener, a minimally responsible killer. So what I once thought, and my former student Bazargan thinks in a slightly different form, is that we can figure out how much harm a minimally responsible threatener is morally liable to suffer, and then try to determine how much more harm (coughs) uh, that... uh, How can I put this? (coughs) Figure out the difference between that degree of harm and the harm that he would suffer in being killed and try to justify that remaining harm beyond the harm to which he's liable on the ground that it would be the lesser evil in the circumstances. I've called this a combined justification because what it does is tries to combine both a liability justification for inflicting a certain amount of harm on a person and then along with a lesser evil justification for inflicting (coughs) the remaining harm up to the harm of death on this person. And that's how you would justify killing a single minimally responsible killer in self-defense. Now, this would be 
This would be a nice solution because in principle it provides an explanation not only of how it could be permissible to kill a single minimally responsible killer, as I've just explained, it would say that such a person is liable to a certain amount of harm and then you can inflict the remainder of the harm of death on grounds of lesser evil. So it provides the justification for killing a single, single minimally responsible killer. But it can also explain why there's a limit to the number of minimally responsible killers that would be permissible to kill. And that's because as you increase the number of minimally responsible threateners, there's more and more harm that needs to be justified on the ground that it's the lesser evil. So the more minimally responsible threateners there are, the more harm has to be justified on the ground that there's the lesser evil. But while when you increase the numbers, the amount of harm that has to be justified as the lesser evil increases proportionately, the amount of harm to be prevented remains constant. It's just the harm of death to the innocent victim. So once you add some numbers, the, the lesser evil part of the overall justification is no longer going to apply. So what that suggests to me is, that, is something like this, that this combined form of justification might give us something like the ideal solution here. It, would, it might justify the uh, killing three, five, six, maybe ten minimally responsible killers. I don't, you know, uh, one could argue about the, about the numbers here. But pretty soon the lesser evil justification would run out and it wouldn't be permissible to kill any more than that. My thought, though, is that now, my thought is that this, this form of justification really won't work. Um, for most cases. It might work in a few cases, but it's not going to work in most cases. And I'll, I'll try to explain why with a, with a brief illustration. Let's suppose that we've got a case now of just one minimally responsible killer and one innocent victim. Suppose they would both suffer an, a roughly equivalent harm in being killed. Let's call it negative 100. They would suffer a harm of negative 100. And suppose that the minimally responsible killer is liable on a kind of non-comparative view of liability to suffer a harm of negative 90 to prevent him from killing the innocent victim. That's a generous assumption on my part. <coughs> I mean, the people who claim that minimally responsible killers are not liable to be killed would... would almost certainly say that the amount of harm to which they could be liable on a non-comparative account of liability would be lower than negative 90. And that, and that, that um, makes it harder for them. So I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and making it negative 90. So the claim here is that we can justify the infliction of negative 90 harm on the minimally responsible killer. And now we've got a choice between inflicting the further negative 10 on this person and allowing this person to inflict fully negative 100 on the innocent victim. So we've got negative 10 versus negative 100. And the claim has to be that inflicting negative 10 on this person is the lesser evil in relation to allowing the innocent victim to suffer negative 100. And I don't think that the, the numbers are right for a lesser evil justification because lesser evil justification is 
a justification according to which it can be permissible to inflict harm on a person who's not liable to that harm, but only is uh, only if the harm that would thereby be prevented was very substantially greater. And 10 to 1 doesn't seem to me to be the right ratio. You can think about this in the following way. Imagine that I'm going to suffer um, 10 hours of intense pain unless I cause you to suffer one hour of intense pain. Can I claim a lesser evil justification for causing you completely innocent, not liable to any harm at all, to suffer one hour of, in, uh, of intense pain to prevent myself from suffering ten hours of intense pain. It seems to me that's not right for, the, you know, that's, the ratio isn't good enough for a lesser evil justification. If, if I were otherwise, if I were going to suffer a hundred hours of intense pain and I could prevent that by causing you one hour of really intense pain, then maybe that, then I might have a lesser evil justification. Okay, so I don't think that this combined form of justification actually works. I don't think it works even to justify the killing of a single minimally responsible threatener. I'm inclined to think what we need is to go back to the comparative notion of liability and claim that a single minimally responsible killer is actually morally liable to be killed. But if that's so, and the liability justification can be indefinitely reapplied, then we get the, to my mind, highly counterintuitive conclusion that there's no limit to the number of minimally responsible killers it could be permissible for me to kill. Now, here's the final bit. Here's where I'm going to give you uh, what I think is the right solution to the problem. Uh, I'm not at all certain about this. I, I, I gave this paper a couple times in the past, uh, and on those occasions concluded that the combined justification idea was the solution. And I, I was wrong about that. I may have even had some other solutions. Yeah, I did. I had a couple of other solutions um, as well that I've actually published. Um, and I think they're all wrong too. So this is something like fourth or fifth stab at, at solving this problem. It seems like such an easy problem. But it turns out I think it's not. How many solutions can you kill before it becomes <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I, kind of, I mean, I sort of hope that my efforts to kill some of my previous solutions weren't successful. I mean, I'd like it if I'd got it right earlier on, but um, I think they, uh, they, they died natural deaths um, from, from being implausible. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm thinking at the moment. Um, and I may give this up at the end of the talk, I don't know. I'm going to make the assumption, which I've always thought plausible, that if there's a single minimally responsible killer, he's morally liable to be killed. We've got a liability justification for killing a single one. And I also want to accept what I said earlier, which is that if there are a thousand minimally responsible killers, killing any one of them can be effective and proportionate only if all of them are going to be killed. And all of them can be killed only if it's permissible to kill all of them. This brings us back to that circularity problem that I mentioned earlier. It seems like we can determine 
whether it's permissible to kill all thousand of them only if we know whether each one of them is morally liable to be killed. But what I'm going to suggest now is that that's not actually correct. That is, I think that we can judge legitimately, in the case of the minimally responsible killers, that it wouldn't be permissible to kill all thousand of them. And we can make this judgment completely independently of having determined yet whether each one of them is morally liable to be killed or not. We can make this judgment even if we accept that if there were only one of them, he would be morally liable to be killed. What we can do here is to make what I'm going to call a a global proportionality judgment or a judgment about proportionality in the aggregate is the term that I'm that I'm wanting to use. The idea here is this, and and in some ways this seems really simple and obvious, but I, I don't know of anybody who's ever suggested it. That is, when we consider all the harm that would be involved in killing a thousand people, taking into account that each of them is minimally responsible, but only minimally responsible for the threat to the life of, for a threat to the life of an innocent victim. And we compare all of this harm to the threatened harm to the victim who's completely innocent and bears no responsibility for the fact that somebody has to die. We can, on this basis alone, make the intuitive judgment that it would be wrong to kill all thousand of these people. And we're taking account of all the considerations that are relevant to individual liability judgments. That is, we're taking into account the degree to which each one of these minimally responsible uh, killers would be responsible for uh, the death of the individual victim. We're taking account of the fact that each one of them would actually kill the victim and so on. And what we're doing here is we're judging intuitively that this is that it would be wrong to kill that many people to save the life of one innocent person and wrong because killing that many people would be disproportionate. It's just too many people. So this is a notion of disproportionality in numbers. It's not narrow proportionality. It's not wide proportionality. It's a a sui generis notion of proportionality that has to do with numbers. So if you think about it, what I've earlier referred to as narrow proportionality is a relation between harm, harm to uh, uh, a victim and harm to a threatener. <coughs> Wide proportionality takes account of numbers, but narrow proportionality really doesn't. And that's the problem with the notion. We need to be able to take account of numbers in our assessments of proportionality. So the conclusion uh, that I want to come to is this. Assuming that we can determine that it's disproportionate in the aggregate to kill all thousand minimally responsible killers, and assuming that killing any one of them would be disproportionate in the narrow sense unless all the others will be killed, And assuming that proportionality is internal to the notion of liability so that no one can be liable to a disproportionate harm, it follows in this case that none of the minimally responsible killers is morally liable to be killed when there are 
a thousand of them, or a number that it would be disproportionate in the aggregate to kill. We can figure this out in advance of determining their individual liability. In other words, their individual liability depends upon this antecedent judgment about proportionality in the aggregate or proportionality in numbers. And we can do the same thing with respect to the 1,000 culpable killers. If you, if you think about 1,000 people who are all fully culpable for threatening an individual victim who's entirely innocent, you can then ask yourself whether killing 1,000 such people would be disproportionate in relation to uh, the saving of the life of the innocent victim. And you might then make the... Uh, aggregate proportionality judgment that it would not be disproportionate to kill a thousand such people. I mean, these are, these are murderers. Maybe it would be proportionate to kill fully a thousand of them. Or maybe you're nicer than that and you think, no, maybe we shouldn't kill a thousand people, even if they're fully culpable. And you might think, you know, various considerations are relevant to that. But if you do arrive at the conclusion that it would be permissible to kill all thousand culpable killers, then you're entitled to the view that each one of them is morally liable to be killed um, in the same way that you should conclude in the cases of minimally responsible killers that each one of them is not morally liable to be killed because, of, uh, because killing all of them would be disproportionate in the aggregate. I'll stop there. Thanks very much. So, um, right, so if you could leave your hands up. Okay. Um, other hands? Okay. Right, yeah. Okay, so let's begin here. Um, hi, thank you first for a very interesting lecture. If I may, I'd like to be uh, greedy and ask two questions. I hope that's okay. Um, so, first of all, I had a problem with your uh, pinching scenario, and I'd like to hear your, your views on it. It seems to me that you neglected to deal with the, um, the subjective view of the victim in that scenario. So in a scenario, you pull out a replica gun and point at me, and I pull out a real gun and shoot you back. The moral assessment of that act is going to depend on my knowledge of whether your gun is a replica gun or not. So it seemed to me that in the pinching scenario, the question of whether the victim knew, sorry, whether the victim herself held, a mistake, held the, mis the mistaken belief that being pinched would lead to a death is decisive. And if the victim did hold that mistaken belief too, it doesn't seem to me that that scenario really poses the problem that you suggest it does. Um, the second thing that I wanted to ask was that when we're talking about the moral permissibility of something uh, it seems to me that it could be said that there are really two things in that one being um, the avoidance of harm and the other being something about um, punishment for a, a transgression so a kind of a, a, a moral uh, a just desserts kind of argument <coughs> and I just wondered if you thought that distinction was of any use in considering your scenarios thank you very much okay Thanks. Um, on your first point, I was assuming that the victim in the pincher case 
knew that she wasn't going to be killed by being pinched, that she was aware that the pincher is highly culpable and would was intending to kill her, but in pinching her would succeed in doing nothing more than causing her a, a momentary sharp pain. Um, now, I also... I, 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 you're calling attention to something that's really important in thinking about the morality of defensive harming. And that is whether we should be assessing the permissibility of defensive action relative to the facts as they are, relative to or relative to the evidence that's available to the defending agent, or relative to whatever beliefs the defending agent happens to have at the time. Uh, this has been an important issue in legal thinking about defense. Uh, there was a famous case in the United States in 1984. Some of you probably remember the Getz case. Bernard Getz, who, killed, who shot four panhandlers on a subway car. And one of the issues at trial there was whether his action should the proportionality of his allegedly defensive action should be assessed relative to what he believed about the threat that he faced or relative to what the evidence suggested about the threat that he faced or relative to, in fact, the threat that he faced. Um, so that's always a, 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 an important issue. And when one discusses questions of defense, it's important to make it clear which of these forms of assessment one has in mind. Um, and <clears throat> what I should have said there was just assume that all the people involved in the situation except the deluded pincher um, knew all the facts. The second uh, point you wanted me to address was about uh, the relevance of considerations uh, of punishment in these cases. And... I want, to, I want always to put that kind of consideration aside in thinking about the morality of defensive action. Or perhaps what I should say is, is this. Instead, I think that the best way of thinking about punishment is to think of punishment as being justified primarily by defensive considerations rather than by retributive considerations. So I want to keep desert and retribution completely out of any theorizing that I do about defense and indeed, if possible, out of any theorizing that I do about punishment. It's not because I positively reject the idea that people can deserve to be harmed, um, but it is that I have sufficient doubts about whether people can deserve to be harmed that I don't want anything in my own thinking about these issues to depend on that assumption if I can help it. So I'm trying to keep dessert completely out of the picture here. Thanks, Jeff, for your very interesting talk. Um, I want to ask about this question. Uh, you, you went back and forth between the person who's doing the defense of killing being, usually you spoke about it being the person who's being threatened, but sometimes you also spoke about a third party. Right? So let me give you a scenario. And I think it might make a difference in the scenario. So someone has decided to drive a car. 
they know that this imposes some small risk on bystanders, say the brakes fail of the car, that they will get killed, but it's, it's small enough for it to be permissible for them to take the risk of driving the car. Mm-hmm. Now, un- it's not the fault of the person who's driving the car, but through some freak uh, occurrence, though known that there was risk that this would occur, the brakes fail, the car is careening out of control towards an innocent person. Now, that seems to be the case of a minimally responsible right. Uh, person. Right? And, and now, imagine first that the person who's innocent can blow up the car, redirect it, so the person will die, right? Mm -hmm. That, I think, I agree with you, is permissible. Now, a third party. A third party who has, say, the possibility of either, you know, uh, redirecting uh, the car or blowing it up, say, uh, or letting it occur. Mm -hmm. It's not so clear to me that it's permissible of this third party to um, intervene in this case. Um, and I wondered if you could reflect on that distinction, because if it is a liability justification, then it should <coughs> apply to third parties as much as it does to the person who is defending themselves. Um, so I wonder whether something else besides liability might be going on here. Thanks. Uh, yes, that's um, an important thought. Uh, and I agree. I, my, my intuition is that it would be harder for a third party to justify, harder to justify third party intervention in that kind of case. But I'm willing to give up that intuition. Uh, I think that if there's a liability justification, if the explanation of why it's permissible for the victim to blow up the car that's heading towards him is that the driver of the car has chosen voluntarily to engage in a risk-imposing activity for reasons of self-interest. If that's the justification, it's a liability justification, and that applies just as much to third parties. Liability justifications are, as moral philosophers say, agent-neutral. Now, you might think, well, Bringing up the case involving the third party casts doubt on the the idea that there really is a liability justification. Fair enough. I I accept that. On the other hand, if you really do want to stick with the idea that it would be permissible for the victim to blow up the car that's heading towards him, but not permissible for a third party to blow up the car, then I think you need a a different form of justification for the uh, individual victim. And that has been suggested by a number of people in, in the literature. And they, what they claim is that the justification in this case, where both parties are kind of completely morally innocent, uh, appeals to what philosophers call an agent relative permission, or what Sam Scheffler called an agent-centered prerogative. Each of us is entitled to give greater value to his or her own life in these situations than to the life of the threatener. That seems to me to be a a highly problematic idea. Um, And that's because Mike and I have both discussed this and have, have, I think, the same view about this. Uh, And it is that if that idea applies in the case of a minimally responsible threatener, it should also apply in a case in which 
I can defend myself against some threat only by acting in a way that will kill a completely innocent bystander as a side effect. And many of us have the intuition that it's not permissible for me acting in my own defense against some threat when it's just my life that will be saved and nothing else to kill an innocent person in the course of saving my life. But it seems that I ought to be permitted to do that if indeed I have this agent relative permission that that makes it permissible for me morally to give greater value to my own life than I give to the life of the innocent bystander. Now, one of the reasons I don't find this plausible is that if I'm in this situation, my choice is between the two following options. I can either... I'm giving here a kind of neutral description, I can either intentionally kill an innocent person or I can unintentionally allow an innocent person to die or be killed. And I think if you think about it in that way, most of us think it's not permissible to kill, intentionally to kill an innocent person. Or no, that wouldn't be the case in the, when I, I'm sorry. That's that's when it's the threatener, not the the innocent bystander. Anyway, so what, I'm just, what I've just said applies in the case of the, the driver of the car and so on. It doesn't apply in the case where um, I kill an innocent bystander as a side effect of my defense. But still, in both cases, there's a constraint that needs to be overcome. <clears throat> in the one case, it's the constraint against intentionally killing an innocent person. In the other, it's the constraint against killing an innocent person as opposed to allowing an innocent person to die. And... I just don't think the self-other difference is sufficient to override the constraint against killing. Um, And there are a lot of other cases in which I think the idea of the agent relative permission has um, implausible implications as well. So I just go ahead and embrace the conclusion that um, the justification is a liability justification and extends to third parties as well. Um, Yeah, I guess the two hands in this row and then that Richard was next, and then the person behind Richard was next. Thank you, Prof, for this educational talk. I think it's right to kill the first killer, because this can be used as a deterrent to stop the rest of the killers. The second point, I think there is no aggregate harm in killing all the potential killers, because this has positive impact on the community, to rid the community from killers. Okay, yeah, good. I, I was trying, yeah, I didn't, I didn't fill in all the assumptions. Um, I, I think, of course, you're right. What I should have said at the beginning is I, I want to build in one further assumption, and that is all these killers, if they're not killed, will reform themselves and not pose a threat to anybody <laughs> else in the future. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do what philosophers are really good at making the cases as unrealistic and (laughs) inapplicable to the real world as possible. Thanks. Oh, yeah, sorry. Can you explain that a little more closely? Aggregate harm in killing all the killers, but I don't think there is harm if you kill all the killers, potential killers or liable. You don't think the harm to each one individually aggregates? Is that what you're yeah, saying? It's not harm for the community, maybe for individuals, but not for the community as a whole of the society. 
people will be more safe if the killers are eliminated from the community. Well, suppose they're all going to be put in jail afterwards. If, if, if you know, and so they'll be they'll be removed from the community without being killed. So again, you know, just make some unrealistic assumptions. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So go ahead. Um, yeah, I have a problem with the pairwise comparisons because first they seem helpful because you're less liable than each one of them to be killed, but then they seem to pose a problem because the benefit that you get out of it, which is the small chunk of life that you get out of it, seems not to justify the loss of a life. So they are first helpful, but then they also pose a problem, and I was wondering what's going on there, and then if there's an alternative to pairwise comparisons. Um, b- before you get rid of the microphone, don't get rid of the microphone because I'm not sure I fully understand what you're saying. Can you can you perhaps explain it a little bit better to me? I mean, what I'm, what I'm suggesting here, I think, is that I mean, the conclusion of the paper is that if it's necessary to have this further notion of proportionality in the aggregate, what that means is that we we can't make judgments of liability the way people like Francis Cam and David Roden and others have thought that we could do just by looking at pairwise comparisons. Um, We have to make this further judgment of proportionality in the aggregate and then that feeds back into uh, the process whereby we determine whether people are, are, are individually liable. Yes. No, no, yeah, I got that, but I ju- it just seemed inherently, not, not really paradoxical, but just that the, the problem was really in these pairwise comparisons, because first, they do in the pair, when you compare about liability, they do justify the killing of the, the one, but when you compare about the, the benefit that you get by it, which is the chunk of life that you get, then they suddenly don't seem to justify it anymore, so there seems to be something weird going on there. It depends on what you compare it on, if it's the liability or if it's the benefit of life that you get. Culpability versus benefit, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, I'm not, not exactly sure what's going on here, but the, 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 when, we, when we look at each one in a pairwise way, we can't isolate that pairwise comparison from background considerations, which in these cases of the thousand killers includes the fact that there are lots of other killers in the queue, as it were, waiting. Um, And so if we don't think about that fact, then we'll think it's proportionate for the victim to kill the killer, because otherwise the killer is going to kill the victim. But then when we realize that the death of the victim is actually overdetermined, multiply overdetermined by the fact that there's so many of these other killers waiting in the offing who are going to step in, um, then we realize that in fact it's not the case that if the killing is overdetermined, each one of the killers is morally liable in the pairwise comparison. Actually, what we get in the pairwise comparison is that no, none of the killers is actually morally liable to be killed. And that's because the, the killing is overdetermined and what each one of them will cause if allowed to act is not a harm at all or a trivial harm. Yeah. Should we move uh, to, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Thanks, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not persuaded that the vicious circularity is any such thing. Um, 
And I think the, the way we can see that this you know, problem there is by a very sort of simple backward induction argument. So uh, here's the thought. Uh, you, you, you're essentially having to choose a strategy for playing against a 1,000 people who are coming against you. One strategy is to kill every single one of them. Another <coughs> is to kill the first 50 and then not the rest. Um, of the 51st, because I guess after that it doesn't matter. Um, and so on. So these are all your strategies. And when you want to work out which of those you should choose, the way you do this standard leads you go to the end of the game and you think you're, I'm in the last round and I'm facing the 1,000th killer. Well, now the liability justification is operative, so I will kill at that point. I will kill the aggressor. And we go one stage back at the 999th stage. Now I know what's going to happen in the next stage because I've worked out what I'm morally permitted to do then, it's to kill. So now I make the decision about whether to kill the 999th aggressor in the light of that knowledge. Well, these, these aggregation issues don't apply. There are bodies all around me already at this point, otherwise I wouldn't have got to that, but that's history. Yeah. So now the liability justification applies, and I kill. Beginning. So there's no circularity here. So if you want to stop... I think the only way to do it is one aggressive case. Um, well, I think the notion of proportionality in the aggregate that I've proposed at the end of the paper excludes the backward induction argument, which in any case I think isn't intuitively plausible because if you take it seriously, what it says is it's permissible and proportionate to kill all thousand of the minimally responsible killers. And indeed, it could be a million or any number if I'm understanding the notion of the backward induction. That is, I get to the penultimate, I get to the very last one, I've got a full liability ju justification there, so that's unproblematic. And then I go to the one before that, the penultimate one, same thing, because I can... Um, I know I'm going to be able to kill one after. Um, but then that gives you the justification for killing any number. And that's what I'm saying is implausible. Um, well, well, I'm denying that there's a... Circ I mean, so the, the narrow point was there's no circularity in that argument. So, 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 that's the f so I don't think there's any circularity in the backward induction argument. Then there's a second question about where the... <laughs> You like, the, you like the argument, which you don't, but then you have to deny backward induction. You have to deny that that's a valid form of reasoning, which is a fairly dramatic revision. Uh, or you can deny the premises, of course, because the induction is an if-then argument. I mean, it's if it's permissible when you've got one aggressor facing you, no matter what the history is, then it follows that it's permissible all the way through. So history matters. But... There's a fixed number here. Yeah, not in the infinite repetition. So Chris was just pointing out this. This only works if there's a fixed number of aggressors. If there's an unlimited number coming at you, this doesn't work. <laughs> right, yeah, because there's got to be a last there's got to be a last one. Yeah. Okay, should, should we turn to the Okay, yeah. I so so you mentioned um, that the global proportionality is consistent with the idea that there could be a large enough number of fully culpable killers such that it would be impermissible to kill all of them. We could say a million or two million or whatever. Um, but that 
at the same time, it would be permissible to kill one minimally culpable threat. And that seems to me, I agree with you that it's completely consistent with global proportionality, but that seems <coughs> kind of crazy because it seems as though if I'm a murderer and I find enough murderer friends that we can absolve ourselves, ab- absolve ourselves of the liability to be killed while, say, a highly brainwashed child soldier does not obtain that absolution solely in virtue of lacking the strength in numbers. So, just wondering how that works. Yeah. Um, I do think that we just have to concede that sometimes wrongdoers can, through further wrongdoing, arrange conditions that um, subject innocent people to a kind of moral paralysis. That is, they can make it morally impermissible for people to act in ways that would otherwise be morally permissible to act. Um, One way in which people can do this, of course, and this is I think pretty uncontroversial is to surround themselves with lots of innocent shields or whatever. I mean, a wrongdoer can 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 deprive me of my right to act, um, my the permissibility of acting in defense by making the case that in order to save myself by killing him, I've got to kill a number of innocent shields that he's put around him. And your your case is of course different because it's just saying let's collect a, you know. get all of these highly culpable um, potential murderers and if they can increase their numbers to a, to a certain level then it is going to become impermissible for the innocent victim to kill all of them. Um, I, don't, I don't actually take a view about that in, in the talk. Um, And I don't know, it seems to be an intuitive matter in a way. I know a lot of people who think that there has to be some limit to the number of Hitlers that it's permissible for me to kill to prevent them from all together killing me. And other people who think, no, there's just no, no you know, if it's just one, one Hitler after another, I can just keep killing all these Hitlers until <laughs> the cows come home. Uh, and I'm not sure what I think about that. I, um, you know, I think in practice, we don't ever have to uh, reach a decision about that because in practice, it seems to me, culpable killers are going to have parents, children, friends, and so on who are going to be harmed by their being killed. And if you, if you kill enough such people, I think the side effect harms to their innocent relatives and so on are going to make it impermissible for you to, to kill them. So in practice, it's always going to be impermissible to kill a certain number of... I mean, it's going to be impermissible to go beyond killing a certain number of highly culpable uh, people as a means of self-defense just because of the side effects. Uh, perhaps uh, one last question. Thank you. Um, I guess this is similar to the backwards induction argument, but it's really just a question of, is my liability, if I'm in the line of killers, is my liability assessed by 
um, this hypothetical that I could be the first in line at some point? Or is it assessed by virtue of the fact that I'm the 30th or the, the, the thousandth in line? So I guess when I think about, you know, if we know that there are a thousand people in line, the liability slightly potentially decreases as you go back in line because me being the thousandth, I can, I'm only potentially a killer if all of the people in front of me have been killed. And so are these, are these people actually in line? Are they, are they part of each other's history and future? Or are they kind of um, individual instances of things happening? I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, it makes sense. I, um, I'm not sure what to say. I mean, it's an interesting thought um, because what you're suggesting here is something like this, that um, the probability, I mean, assume there is a line. So assume there's a queue. They're all queued up outside the door and they're going to come in one after the other and I'm in an entrenched position with my weapon um, and it does seem I can only be killed once and so there are a thousand of these people and it does look like it's m- more probable that the earlier on a person is in the queue that that person will actually be a killer than it is that somebody further back in the queue will become a killer so does this matter? That's my question. Yeah. I think not. Um, but there's a way in which you might think it does, and that is that if you think that, if you assess the harm that each one will cause if not killed by reference to the notion of expected harm rather than just the fact that he'll kill me if he gets the chance, then it looks like the expected harm that the first one of these people will kill is greater than the expected harm that the 990th one will cause because we're multiplying the harm of death by the probability. And the probability of successful killing seems to recede as the people go back in the line. And that's a, that's a complication I just hadn't thought of. I'm not sure what to make of it. But thank you for that. And if you if you have if you if you figure out what to do with it, let <laughs> <Sure>. me know. <laughs> right, well, thank you very much. Um, it just remains for me to thank the speaker for a very interesting talk and fascinating discussion afterwards, and also to thank the audience for your contributions.